Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. And welcome back. Before we begin today, I'd like to give what is now my customary apology for how long this episode has taken to get out. There you go, that's it. I'll try and have the next one out sooner. I'm really keen to do so, but unfortunately real life has a tendency to get in the way. Secondly, the story I'm telling today is the second one taken from the Mabinogion, which is, as we'll discuss a bit more at the end, a series of Welsh tales. That does mean that it involves a lot of Welsh pronunciation. This time I sought some help in getting those right, so I'm definitely indebted to the people who have tried to help me with this. Firstly to Lewis, who goes by at Flan on Twitter, which is a wonderful pun, on the name of a character that appears in this actual story. And thanks are also due to Ellen Longcommon and Anne-Marie O'Neill, all of whom gave their help for free and patiently. I do hope they're not too disappointed with the end result. Pronunciations are still unlikely to be correct, but hopefully they're a little bit closer thanks to these people's hard work. And with that out of the way, let's start the story. Our story today begins with seven men and a giant head. What's it all about, really, when you get down to it? asked Prideri. What exactly do you mean by it all? asked Manawedon. Oh, you know, all of this, life, the universe, everything. Prideri gestured around at the most of the known universe. The roof, the walls, the side rooms, the fire, the tables laid high with drink and food of the finest quality. Not that there was any other type of drink or food in the universe, of course. Manawedon set to a great pondering on the subject. He considered it deeply. Hmmed a lot. Finally, he felt that he'd reached a conclusion. I don't know, but it's a great world, isn't it? Oh, it's bloody marvellous. Pass the wine, would you? There were eight of them. There was Pradeli and Manoedon. There was Hylan and Taliesin and Griviai, Gliviai and Anog. And of course, finally, there was the head. The noble head. The head that chatted merrily away with them all and was just as much a part of the company as any of the others. Though, of course, they made the odd joke at his expense. Hey, why didn't the noble head go to the ball? I don't know, why didn't the noble head go to the ball? He had no body to go with. Badum tish. Or maybe they'd say, how to get ahead in life, while throwing their arms around the head, which was a bit oversized, by the way. So don't think of it as a normal head. Think of it as quite a bit larger, but very much just a head. Oh, and they weren't speaking English. They were all 
speaking some, well, I don't really know, but some form of Kim Lag or Welsh. So they weren't making those exact puns, but they were just as terrible in whatever language it was they were speaking. Very droll, said the noble head, every time they told one of those jokes. But it was all done in good humour, and there was no animosity between the companions at all. On some level they knew that there had been a life before they were here in the hall. They could gaze out of the two open doors to the ocean, and beyond the shimmering water, there they could see on a clear day, other lands. Lands where they kind of knew that they had once dwelt. But that was of little consequence now. Each of them had lived in the hall for far longer than they'd ever been out there. The hall really was the world to them, and a mighty fine world at that, full of the most bountiful abundance of pleasurable experiences. You want details? Well, they are scarce, but let's imagine at least a great quantity of the most mouth-watering food and drink, supplied all the time, but with none of the ill effects, no heart disease, no hangovers, there was no eating too many Haribo sweets that one time, and then never really being able to enjoy them ever again. All the intense pleasures of indulgence without any of the pesky consequences. They didn't age, and they were physically fit men, and the head was a large physically fit head, and it seems likely that they played many sports within that vast space. Board games and card games as well. Some form of taffle was the usual choice, though I do get the idea that these were a bunch who would have really enjoyed Cards Against Humanity if it had been available. Did they have sex? They'd been there unaging for a lot of years, there were a lot of fit young men together, I don't know, but if they didn't use their eternal youth for engaging in a little bit of the pleasures of the flesh, they're probably missing out a little. There were certainly music, stories and poetry. Taliesin was a poet and bard of some great renown, and we all of course appreciate just how important storytellers are, and just generally what all-round decent folk they are, preeminent in their communities, highly regarded by all, very popular, and it almost goes without saying, but they are of course all quite devastatingly attractive. And so the others were listening in rapt attention to Taliesin's verse. He tell tales of great battles and of greater loves, and his companions would be swept along and they'd be engaged in the story. And they did remember battles and women and fathers and all the other strange concepts that cropped up in the stories. But they did so in a generic kind of way. The concepts they grasped, and they could picture the characters of the stories clear enough. But if for a second they tried to recall a specific woman, a battle they had been at, the face of one of their own family members, then their mind would, for an instant, half feel something solid. But when it tried to grasp at it tightly, the thought would slip away from them like an oiled-up eel. Do not be mistaken, this didn't cause them any distress for this was the way of memory as they knew it. For this hall was the world, and the world was this hall. And all their life was their life here. And life was good. Some more years passed. The men were resting after some or other vigorous activity, 
and they were probably enjoying some leafy water and snacking on lotus fruits. So, the other door? asked Halen. The other door? Yeah, the third one. You know, that one. Halen pointed to the very back of the hall, where there was an extremely obvious arched oaken door, barred shut from the inside. Ah. A few more heads turned towards the door. Oh yeah, that one. I'd kind of forgotten about that one, you know. Is it really a door? asked Taliesin. I mean, it's not open. That's just a stylized wall, isn't it? Hmm. There came sounds from the group, indicating there was some deep consideration of the ontological nature of doors going on. You know, I do remember that door, said Anog. I'm pretty sure we're not meant to open it, you know. Yeah, said Taliesin, recalling something through the haze of decades. That sounds familiar, actually. Yeah, we shouldn't open that. How long have we been here now? It must be, what, a year? Eighteen months, maybe? The noble head spoke up. It's been eighty years. You always did have a good head for figures, said Manoweden. The group burst into laughter. The head rolled his large eyes. No, no, don't be distracted, said Highland. We've been here eighty years, and we've never been through the door. We're not meant to go through the door. Something will happen, said Manoweden. Well, shame on my beard, unless I open that door and find out if what you say is true, said Hylan, while tugging on his prestigious mane for emphasis. And with a sudden decisive movement, he sprung up, strode towards the door, lifted the bar off, and flung it open. To a casual observer, if there could be such a thing in this place, it would appear that nothing had happened at all. The door opened, just like a regular door. Looking out of it you could see the sea, and beyond that, if you had very good eyes, the land that would eventually become known as Cornwall was off in the far distance. But then the observer would notice Highland, first frozen, just for an instant, and then staggering backwards, as if hit by some tremendous blow. For him, and for all the people in the hall, in fact, as the door opened, they felt a tremendous force crash into them. Not physical, but the pent-up energy of all the memories that had been taken from them, coming back in one single great psychic tidal wave. In an instant, Highland remembered everything, from his earliest childhood memories, his illnesses, his losses, through his growth into manhood, until all the more recent recollections of how he came to be here. He felt the heat of the roaring fire, the awful screams, those memories of eviscerated limbs, fountains of blood, memories of the war cries, and then, worse still, the lack of war cries, the unnatural silence, and there was the way the earth shook as that great body slumped onto it. Oh, Branwyn! He was finally overcome by it all, and fell backwards onto the floor. 
for a while there was almost total silence in the great hall, except for small, shocked noises, half gasps of pain. After a long while, Highland finally managed to make it to his feet again. There was no trace of levity left in his expression. His experiences weighed heavily upon him. His face wore a grimness. But like all of them, he had a purpose now. We must leave this place, right away, said Highland. And there came no disagreement. The eyes of the noble head had closed now for the last time. The life had gone out of it. Never again would it respond with mock annoyance to their gentle ribbings. In short order, the remaining seven left the hall, taking the lifeless head with them. They had a duty to perform. And this, this is almost where our story ends. But let's go back to the beginning. 80 years and then a few more besides that for good measure. Let's get the setting out of the way. We're on what was then known as the Island of the Mighty. The island which this day is called Great Britain. And for all of you not too familiar with the geographical particulars, the difference between the UK and Britain and Great Britain and maybe even England, Well, Great Britain is the large island which makes up the mainland of Britain. Most of England, Scotland and Wales sit on it. Now at this time, the island of the mighty, or Great Britain as it is now, was ruled over by people who were, to some extent, British. England? Well, England wasn't even a glint in the eye of the GI who would father the milkman, the glint in whose eye would eventually lead to the coming of the Angles to these shores. And as there was no England, there was no Wales and no Scotland, just one island of Britons, currently under one king, the Island of the Mighty. And this story, it's about Branwyn. Well, kind of. Because when we discuss Branwyn, we really end up talking about her whole family. A part of me wants to say that it was an unusual family. But has there ever really been a usual family? I suspect not but it was a very important family, and a large one. A Brady Bunch-esque opening sequence would be more than appropriate to introduce them. The Branwyn Bunch, perhaps. You see, we must talk about her family to talk about Branwyn, because her choices, as a young woman, were rather limited and curtailed. The course of her life was controlled by her very male-dominated family. So let's do some introductions. Okay, so a quick word before we launch into this properly. This story has a lot of named characters for its length. I'm going to try and add reminders and help you keep tabs on them, but there's only a certain amount of that I can do before that itself becomes annoying. Hopefully it's manageable. And to take an even bigger detour, one thing that you should be aware of that might not have come across very strongly in that introduction is that in terms of its scale, this is an epic story. And yes, I know, that is terrible storytelling form there. Show, don't tell, that's the golden rule. But I want to emphasise here that while we'll be focusing on the actions of a fair few named characters, this is a story that involves the fates of whole peoples. Because by long networks of power, the characters we'll meet command entire populations. 
and as is the sorry lot of the great mass of humanity for pretty much all of recorded history, those peoples are all swept up in the personal dramas and conflicts of our heroes, villains and morally grey protagonists. The direction of their cheap lives are determined by the course of events that they can never hope to influence. So I'm just going to throw that out there at the beginning and if that colours how you see the story, good. Anyway, so, back to the Branwyn bunch. Damn it. That's it. That's it, I promise. Branwyn's mother was Penarden. She was no longer around. Don't know where she was. And her father was Clear, who was also no longer around. And she had two full brothers. Manoedan and Bendigirdran. Now she also had two half-brothers, so same mother, different father. These were Nishian and Evnishian. Ah, so mother remarried, you might be thinking. And no, there's some gaps in the backstory here, but from what we do know, that doesn't seem likely. Because what we do know is that Nishian and Evnishian's father took Branwyn's father, Clear, as his prisoner. Now, exactly where Branwyn's mother stood on this, well, we don't know. There's quite a multitude of ways that could have gone. Some good, some very bad. But they don't like to talk about it very much. But we can forget all of that now, as for whatever the fascinating story there, we don't get any of it, and the parents are well and truly out of the picture. So we're simply left with five kids. Branwyn had two full brothers and two half-brothers now all very much grown up, and whatever the disagreements between the two fathers, they actually all just about get along okay. Oh, and importantly, they are also the ruling family of the Island of the Mighty. Bendigird Thran, or simply Bran, let's just call him Bran from now on, he's the king. And he's based out of London, because London is a very old city. If you haven't listened to them already, see the London episodes for some more on this. And there's something pretty special about Bran. You see, back in these days of myth and magic, it really helped to have a good bloodline. One that traced its ancestry to, for the sake of convenience, let's call them the gods. Supernatural beings at least. And such ancestry was what Bran and all the other children by extension had. And for reasons to do with pea plants I didn't pay enough attention to in biology lessons, while four of the children were standard humans, though with all the beauty, intelligence, physical fitness, yada yada, that all nobles are possessed of, Bran was a literal giant. Not a lanky seven foot tall lad, no, a giant, with giant proportions, four or five times the height of a normal person. So big that the only structure of the time that could fit him in were tents. No house or palace was big enough. But unlike almost every other giant in a story where a giant runs a kingdom, Bran was seen by his people as basically a decent ruler. And, as previously mentioned, Englishmen having not yet been invented, he ate perfectly normal, if somewhat oversized meals, probably an extra large in USA meal terms. Though the jury's still out on whether he called for his meals with the traditional fee-fi-fo-fum rhyme. So it's nice to see some stereotypes being defied there, I think. One other thing. Bran was the Crow King, because, well, Bran means crow. Pretty simple there. And as well as just being a giant, he had to have other cool attributes. And as we open our story, Branwyn had come to Aberthrow, 
to meet with her brother Bran. From an early age, Branwyn had understood the path her brothers and her society expected of her. As childhood ended, she became quickly known as one of the three chief maidens of the Island of the Mighty. Many told her that she was the most beautiful woman in the world, and beauty in her social position brought just one bittersweet reward. And today was the day when she would get to claim it. It had all started a few days ago. The ships had arrived at a time when, by chance or design, Bendigeidthran had been admiring the sea view from the high rock of Harlech on the western coast of his island. Thirteen ships of the finest craftsmanship, practically sparkling new, flying exquisite banners of brocaded silk. Caution was usually advised around foreign ships, but it was soon established that they weren't here for a fight. Quite the opposite, in fact. The fleet belonged to the King of Ireland. He had travelled there to make an offer to Bran. Relations between Ireland and the Island of the Mighty had not always been the best. There was certainly a history there, but it's not worth digging into that now, especially because Mafolloch, King of the Irish, wanted to improve the situation. Bran's messengers returned to him, relaying Mafalach's words. He wishes to unite your two families, my lord, to join together Ireland and the Island of the Mighty. Mafalach was proposing an alliance. I'm not privy to the geopolitical considerations that made the giant king feel that this was desirable, but there certainly must have been some, for he was very agreeable to the scheme proposed, and even the terms under which it was so proposed. Marriage alliances, or marriages of states, have a long and venerable heritage as a method of bonding separate communities, and they would continue to be a key component of statecraft for many centuries thereafter. And Bran had a sister who we have established was very beautiful and normal-sized. And so there was no great surprise when Mafalach proposed, not to euphemise it too much, Bran wouldn't be given to him. The king consulted with his close counsellors and with his full brother, Manawedan. Such an opportunity was what Branwyn was for. Peace, even close cooperation with the Irish, would be the outcome. It didn't take long to decide. So, Bran and Mafalach agreed. They set a date, a time and a place where the happy couple would sleep together or some of a more flowery euphemism for sex. It was to be soon, and it was to be close by. At some point in the process, we must assume that, at least for the sake of logistics, Branwyn was also told. And that's why she was here, in Aberthrow, with the greatest and the good of both islands. This moment was what Branwyn's life had been building up to. The day had finally arrived. Her feelings on the matter are completely unrecorded. Aberthrow in Anglesey was one of Bran's great courts, and there a sumptuous feast had been prepared, a great celebration of the union of the two countries. 
and of Mafalic and Branwyn, of course. They were intense, because, as we said before, no buildings for the giant king. And it was, everyone agreed, a perfect event. There was drinking and dancing, carousing and conversing into the earliest of hours. And after all the celebration, when events concluded and people drifted off to bed, Mafalach and Brownman did indeed sleep together. Branwyn's feelings on this are completely unrecorded. Now, not everyone had made it to the wedding celebration. There were a few reasons for this. It was organised with some degree of haste, because arranging the fleet from Ireland had not been a small affair and trying to return home then come back was simply out of the question. Strike while the iron is hot. And of course at this time, finding everyone was hardly a simple task. Certainly no instant messengers or phones, but even a good old letter and a postcode was out. I'm saying this to explain that no one was purposely excluded. It just happened that way. And so enter Evnitian. Evnitian, who happened to be on the island of Anglesey a few days after the wedding. The Irish had temporarily remained there, for there were all kinds of matters to sort out between the two new allies. Evnitian had not heard of the wedding, but he did notice the large numbers of foreign soldiers around the place. And when he came to a house that he knew well, and found the fields all around full of horses he didn't recognise, he asks the obvious question. Who do all these horses belong to? Oh, said the people who kept that place. You don't know? Know what? Oh, great news, my lord. These horses belong to Mefolach, you know, the king of Ireland. I know who he is. And what, pray, are the king of Ireland's horses doing here? This and he gestured around. This is not Ireland. And let's freeze frame right there, with Evnitian gesturing in annoyance. Let's talk about Nishian and Evnitian and their characters. Nishian was by nature a good, peaceful man. In all areas of his life he would play the diplomat, seeking to offend no one, cool, hot tempers, to listen, to find areas of agreement, to compromise. Evnitian. Well, where his brother was calm, he was quick to anger. While his brother made peace, he would provoke arguments. He would make an internet troll of the worst kind, all negativity and hate. And now you know that. Let's return to the scene and press play. So, why are the Irish horses here? Well, you know, my lord. I do not know, or I would not have asked. Well, the King of Ireland is here, in Anglesey. He slept with Branwyn, and they're going back to, you know... The man trailed off. My sister, Branwyn. Nodding. Have they given away my sister without my permission? Asked Evnissian rhetorically. The man shrunk back, nodding. Evnitian took out a large knife. My lord, no! Evnitian turned from the man and went instead to the horses, and with a great savagery he set out amongst them. He 
cut the animals' lips down to their teeth, hacked ears from heads, chopped off tails. Blood flowed and body parts dropped to the floor. There was a great panic amongst the animals, but Evnitian was ferociously strong and determined, and where he could, he hacked even eyelids off. And he did not stop. Long after the red heat of the initial rage had subsided, he worked his way methodically through the herds, maiming each and every one of the animals. And Evnitian was left standing at the centre of a terrible maelstrom of screaming horses, blood and body parts. And every one of the horses had been made useless to the Irish king. Word of this horrendous event soon reached Mfolloch. A terrible insult has been done to you, my lord, came the message from his closest advisers. And most deliberately at that, this insult of the Britons to you is of the most serious kind. And it was. Do not just consider the horror of it, but also see it as an unprovoked attack, a destruction of property that had been given to the British king for safekeeping, and all done by a brother of the king, one of the highest-ranking noblemen in the land. As international incidents go, this was just short of all-out war. I just... I cannot understand it, though, said Mephalloch. Why give me such a fine maiden, and then insult me so? There's no sense to it. But to his advisers, it was all much more clear-cut. We don't need to figure out the strange ways of the people of this island. We know what's happened. We've seen the horses. And it's a horrible, wretched sight. We must leave, now. And indeed, when Mephalloch saw what had been done to his horses, he felt the red mist of rage rise in him, and he agreed. How could he stay here, having been so insulted? And so the Irish broke camp, made for their ships. But it's difficult enough to slip out of any party early, and word of the imminent departure of all the Irish reached the Britons before they were able to set off. Bran sent messengers to the Irish, two of his most trusted counsellors, Ivig and Havive here. In what must have been an awful, tense standoff, they were granted permission to see the king, to ask him his reasons for leaving. And Mephalloch, to his credit, explained, and voiced again his confusion. Ivig and Havive here listened with growing horror as the king angrily explained. Suddenly exposed to this unexpected and understandable fury, like some underpaid customer relationship managers in a call centre in Swansea, they were forced to respond as best they could. I hear what you're saying, and I want to assure you that this was not done with the approval of Bran or any of his court, and while the insult to you is indeed great, the insult to Bran is actually even worse. I don't care about the disgrace to Bran. That doesn't change the insult that's been done to me, or bring my horses back, does it? And who's meant to be in charge in this kingdom anyway? It's Bran, isn't it? Well, I'm very sorry for any inconvenience you've suffered. So do accept this apology on behalf of the court of Bendigevran, and let me just give you a complaint number, and we'll be back in touch with a resolution very soon. And please don't leave the island in the meantime. And with that, they rode back to Bran to tell him what has happened. This 
was bad, very bad. In typical Evnician fashion, the man had at one stroke done possibly irreparable damage to the nascent alliance. We need peace, said Bran. And Mephollach is completely correct. An awful insult has been done to him. We must set matters right, swiftly and justly. You two, Manoedon will go back with you and he will tell Mephollach that we will give him a sound horse for each and every one that was maimed. And in addition he shall of course receive the traditional honour price for himself. A rod of silver as thick as his little finger and as tall as himself and a plate of gold as broad as his face. Tell him again that I had no hand in this, and that it was done by a half-brother against my wishes, and those of the court, and that it would not be easy for me to kill or destroy my half-brother. Do not tarry, go immediately. And as Manoweeding goes to Mephalach with his quite reasonable resolution proposal, Let's just stop a moment and consider that last little bit there. I can't tell you why the actual literal giant Bran, who also happens to be king, couldn't just sort out his half-brother once and for all, but it's clear that he couldn't. Now we already know that Evnishin was strong enough to maim horses alone, and later in the tale it become apparent that he is far stronger than a regular man, so perhaps a little of that divine blood flows in his veins after all but that on its own is unlikely to be sufficient reasons, so perhaps there were others, family loyalty codes that I'm not aware of, or perhaps for all his faults, Evnitian commanded the loyalty of a large number of the people of that land. Perhaps those who had been loyal to his father, and not to Brand's. I don't know, but it's certainly the case that in this matter Brand's hands were somehow tied. Whatever his power on the island, Evnitian would remain unpunished for his act. Manoedon returned with good news. The king had appreciated that Bran's offer was a reasonable one, and he returned to Tent City to discuss the deal and to make peace. The two kings were once again seated together in that temporary court trying to rekindle the easy-flowing repartee of the feast the other evening. But though Mephollach had many a tankard, and Bran many a bucket, the tone of the conversation had changed. While it was light and flowing before, now it was stilted, full of awkward pauses. The air between them was stained with a dishonour, and Bendigedran got the distinct feeling that his offer of compensation had only been good enough. Gold and silver were valuable, but it was a king whose honour had been besmirched, not some regular noble. Bran sighed inwardly. It was time to be the bigger man. Fortunately, he had rather a lot of experience in that area. Mephalloch, I think that perhaps you feel that the compensation you have been granted is too little. In response, the Irish king didn't say it exactly, but his body did. I understand. And look, tomorrow you will get your horses, but also I shall add something to your compensation. You see, I happen to have in my possession something rather special indeed. It's a cauldron, and I will give it to you, but it's no ordinary cauldron. For if the body of one killed today is thrown into the cauldron, 
then by tomorrow he will be alive again, and just as well as he once was. Well, except that he won't be able to speak, so he may not divulge the secrets of the land of the dead. Mafalach blinked, did a bit of a double take. There was no doubt that this was some considerable upping of the compensation. A cauldron of regeneration and rebirth. In fact, it was so good it was kind of tipping it towards Evnician's rage fuel attack had been a good thing for him overall. Some horses that would have to be replaced in exchange for mastery over death itself. He was genuinely happy now. The insult was all but forgotten. He thanked Bran and the conversation became lively once again. The next day the horses and the cauldron were handed over. Bran reminding Mephalloch of the instructions. Just pop a fresh body or bodies in it, put it on a low heat, leave overnight, come back in the morning, and you'll have some very confused and possibly traumatised by going to hell mutes. Couldn't be simpler. As they sat down for yet another drink and a chat, Mephalloch said, You know, there's something about this cauldron that's familiar. Where did you get it exactly? Ah, well, it was a man from your land it came from, actually. Well, I say a man, but he was far closer in size to me than most other men are. Lassar Lass Givnawid was his name, and his wife, Kamedai Kamingvoch, well, she was even bigger than him, and they came here after something bad had happened to them, I understand. Oh, went Mephalach, it's that cauldron. That's what it does. You know of it? Ah, Bran, I do indeed. And of Lassar Lasgivnawid. I think it's time for a quick story within a story. Buckle up. And Mephalach began to tell his tale. It was I who found him first, you know. We were out hunting, riding past a lake. The lake of the cauldron. Mephalloch indicated the cauldron as he said that. And he must have seen us because he came out of the lake, just walked out of the depths of the water, and she behind him. That was the first sign that these weren't normal people. And he was carrying that cauldron on his back. I don't know how you found him to be. But to me, he had an evil look about him. But it's not every day you meet a giant. Well, not in Ireland, at least. (laughs) Awkward pause. Now, I didn't want to be rude when he greeted me, and I was helpful to them. He told me of his wife's condition, that in a month and a fortnight, she would conceive. Which is not something you'd usually know, but anyway, he continued then. And after the babe is born... Then it will be only a month and a half after that, before it is a fully grown, fully armed warrior. He made it sound all so certain, and so much so that it was a bit like this rapidly maturing babe would somehow grow the weapons himself, as an extension of himself. But it all turned out to be the case, just as he said it. The child was big when he was born, of course, and then he shot up so fast you could almost hear him grow. They had with them other children as well, and they asked me to take them in, and I thought, well, they looked kind of ferocious, but well, it seemed interesting, and 
Well, why not? I'm king. Let's see where this goes. And Bran, it was fine for the first year and a bit. No problems at all. But then, well, I'll spare you the details. But then they started insulting people, harassing noble men and women. Noble men and women do not like to be harassed. That's more of a peasant thing to do, really, be harassed. And they didn't like it one bit. So they came to me with an ultimatum. It was the kingdom, or these two and their kids, had to go. As an aside from this, Mafalach seems to be oversharing here somewhat, casually revealing just how weak you are as a ruler to the head of the closest geopolitical rival kingdom feels like an amateur move. Or possibly I'm getting it wrong, and this is the kind of thing where two professionals in the field might talk about the problems they face honestly and openly because no one else can really understand their position. It is lonely at the top, after all. Yeah, I do hate it when they rise up and have demands. I mean, who's meant to be in charge around here? That's us. Tell me about it, buddy. Oh man, subjects, eh? Anyway, back to the story within a story. So I said, Mafalak continued, Okay, fine, fine, you want them gone? I agree. Happy for you to get rid of them. You've got my blessing. I thought that was pretty good. I assume there was a moment there when the nobles went, Okay then. And Mafalach went, Okay then. And the nobles stood there. And they remembered the two fearsome giants, their rapidly maturing warrior children, their legendary prowess in battle. And they looked from one to the other awkwardly. Oh, you, you, want, you want us to do that? Well, yes, I'm king, so go and do it. And the nobles went away to have a think about it. The Council of the Clans did come up with a solution, though. It was not a straightforward one, but the giants had to go. So a big iron house was built. And following this, a call went out to all the smiths in Ireland. Oh, bloody Morrissey these days. Can you believe how he's turned out? Bran did not reply. And then, on top of the iron house, charcoal was piled up. Okay, okay, I think I see where this is going. So, we invited the whole family for a great big meal and lots and lots of drink. I'm sure they had a great time. But when they were all clearly very drunk and very well fed, then the setting fires of the charcoal began. There were great bellows set up around the house, and the smiths blew the bellows, and soon the family was trapped in the house of burning iron. That is pretty horrific, said Bran. They did harass and torment nobles, remember? Yeah, but had anyone actually asked them to leave by this point? I'm asking just out of idle curiosity. Don't don't worry about it, you know. Just tell me what happened. Mafalak continued. Well, after all of that, the plan only kind of half worked. When the iron wall was white hot and at its weakest, then Hlasar Hyskivnewid, he charged at the wall, broke through it, and his wife came after him, and they fled. The children? The children didn't make it, though. Wow, so... He didn't come back for revenge or anything, asked Bran. Nope, they just got their stuff. 
that cauldron, and they came here, I assume. Yes. And and how were they with you? Rude? Oh no, quite the opposite. Polite, actually. They gave me this cauldron, and they've had a lot more of those young warriors, because they pop out fast. And everywhere they go, they strengthen our places with the best weapons anyone has ever seen. It's worked out really well for us, actually. Oh, I see, said Mephalach. He wasn't quite sure how to react to this news. He felt that in some way he had made a mistake of some kind, and lost some competition he didn't even know he was having. Well, I've got the cauldron now anyway, I suppose. You have. And they moved on to talk about other matters, and they got a bard in, and the conversation flowed, and everything was going pretty damn well again. The behaviour of Evnissian was put well and truly behind them, and once again they were on great terms. Branwyn would be Mephalach's bride, and there would be peace between the peoples of Ira and the Island of the Mighty. we should cut back to Branwyn. How was she feeling about all this? Did she know what her half-brother had done? Was there an awkward messenger at some point saying, Hey Branwyn, you know that Irish king you slept with? Who you might be going to live with? It has stuck in my memory, yes. The most important event in my life ever that happened just a few days ago. And I can't help but detect an unexplained and hitherto unnecessary note of uncertainty in your clumsily phrased question. So, out with it, my man. Had she been waiting around, uncertain of her future, but knowing that she was now pretty much married to a man who could soon be her enemy? Did she try to take her own actions? What did she think about Evnissian? Well, if you've been paying any attention, you've guessed it by now. For Branwyn's feelings on all these matters are, of course, unrecorded. But however she had experienced that time, news reached her soon enough that the deal was back on. The thirteen ships of Mephalach left the Island of the Mighty, and he was up one wife, one cauldron, down one load of Irish horses, and up a lot of British ones. As business trips go, this one had, in the end, proved quite successful. His return home was triumphant, and his new queen was warmly welcomed. Buoyed up by his success, he was filled with a spirit of largesse, and when the harassment-averse nobles of Ireland came to visit Branwyn, the queen was permitted to give away a brooch or a ring or a royal jewel, and word quickly spread of her generosity. She gained renown and praise, and was soon surrounded with companions, and in a little while, as was her duty, she became pregnant. Despite the god's blood that flowed through her, the baby that was born seemed perfectly normal. A smiley little boy who looked at the world with big eyes full of curiosity and wonder. They named him Gwern, the Welsh name for the alder tree. And the royal family and all the peoples of Ireland and the island of the mighty both were happy and at peace. The end. Hang on, hang on. That's not the end, say you, my imagined listener. Yes, yes it is. 
says I, the avoidant narrator. But what about everyone with the head and that door that opened? How do they fit in? Oh, that was just a framing narrative. But we didn't even come back to it. How is that a framing? Uh, Very common. People in a head uh, hanging around for 80 years, followed by a story. That is a well-trodden mythological trope. Who's the narrator here again? Look, I can see the book. There's a lot more pages. Oh, these? No, no. That's um, an index. An index to a short story? Really? Well, it's a translation, academic translation. It's not like one of your regular books, this, you know. It's not the end, is it? Yes, it is. Everything's nice, forever and ever. Okay. Okay. You got me. So the first year, the first year was all happiness and peace. And in the second year, murmurs of dissatisfaction began to surface. The weakness of Mephalach's power over his nobles that we saw demonstrated earlier came again to the fore. For while he was keen to forget the insult that had been done, his countrymen were not. And some event or another riled up the court so that Evnitian's brutal attack became the hot topic of conversation amongst all the courtly circles. And it didn't go away. Anger grew at the insult that had been done by the king of the island of the mighty, to Mephalach, and to all of Ireland by extension. Over time, the demands to do something about this outrageous bran became louder and louder, and there would be no peace for Mephalach until he avenged the insult. I can imagine Mephalach saying, Look, you idiots, the horses have all been replaced and we've got the cauldron of rebirth out of this. And the nobles replying, Oh, the cauldron he got from that horrible giant you brought who harassed us? You should never have let him leave of it in the first place. The cauldron should always have been ours. Mephalic was a weak ruler, and in the end, whatever he might have wished, his actions were determined by others. So, how were the Irish going to get back at the Island of the Mighty? Its armies, its magically descended rulers, and its giant king? Well, these brave nobles, concerned as they were about dishonour, decided that the best way to do that would be if they took it all out on Branwyn. She was the sister of both Bran and Evnissian, you see, so it made perfect sense and was definitely the honourable thing to do. So they banished her from her husband's chamber, took her son away from her, and relegated her to cooking for the court. And every single day, the butcher was to be tasked with a sickening ritual, where, after cutting up the meat, he would come to Branwyn and punch her across the face. Every single day. That would show Bran, wouldn't it? Humiliate his sister? Yeah. Or not because the court also took the brave decision to prevent all ships, rowing boats and coracles from leaving Ireland for the Island of the Mighty, and any incoming craft would be first turned away, or if they were persistent, their crews would be imprisoned. All just in case somebody was to leak news of what was happening to Bran. You can see here the confidence that the Irish court had in this plan of action, and that they were in the right, can't you? I suspect they took action against Branwyn full of themselves. 
yeah, we'll show them. And it was only afterwards, when the immediate heat had cooled, that they looked at each other and had that sinking, oh shit moment. And it all really hit home. And then they had to hastily impose a blockade and pretend that that had been the plan all along. Now international trade then wasn't what it is today. And so this awful humiliation for Britain continued for no less than three years. Though, of course, those on the island of the mighty went on living their lives just fine. For of the Britons, only Branwyn knew of the humiliation. Only Branwyn had to suffer the violence. So good job on really humiliating those people on the island of the mighty there. But the Britons would find out, of course. And we'll see just how that goes down in the next episode. Okay, so there we go. Part 1 of Branch 2 of the four branches of the Mabinogi, which are taken from a book collected together as the Mabinogion, which features 11 tales. I hope that's clear. Mabinogion, by the way, is a false plural. It's very important to say this for some reason every time this topic is covered. Now, as I mentioned briefly at the top of the episode, we have covered a tale from the Mabinogion before, so I'm just going to go over the very basics of it here. The four branches of the Mabinogi are taken from a collection of tales written in Welsh from two evocatively named tomes, the Red Book of Hergest and the White Book of Redich, which sound proper magical, don't they? And they even look pretty badass, though also kind of indecipherable. Now these books date to the late 1300s, but academic opinion seems to generally be that the tales in them are quite a bit earlier than that, a couple of hundred years maybe and that they were originally very much tales that were told orally. But in saying that, I'm already going into the realm of supposition and guesswork, because all the key bits about where these stories come from, I've already told you. We don't actually know much more than that for sure. The versions in these two books are the only complete ones we have, with a few bits of the tales in manuscripts that are slightly earlier. Now these tales have become a classic of Welsh literature, They are some of the most complete tales written in Welsh that we have. A lot of the other material that's unique to Wales of a similar age is made up of short snatches of poetry or versions of other tales which we know more about, particularly the Arthurian legends which make up some of the later tales in the Mabinogion. And there are lots of hints in these stories themselves and in other references to them, such as in other bits of poetry that the Mabinogi stories belong to a much broader, richer tradition of stories that have been lost. To take an example from today's story, we discussed Nishin and Evnishin's father. Now he held Bran's father, Clear, captive, as I briefly mentioned. Now Clear is referred to as one of the three exalted prisoners of Britain. And this very much indicates there's a full story there. And this leads to a lot of conjecture about the stories of the Mabinogion and what they represent, because they seem to be all that's left of a pan-British mythology that predates the Anglo-Saxons, now lost to us. And to take that back even further, there are some hints that some of the characters may be, and I'm being careful here now, aren't I, but could possibly be related to Celtic deities. For instance, Manawedan, son of Clear, shares a certain something in common with Manan and Maclear of the Legends of the Isle of Man. 
and so it has been claimed that these are pagan Celtic stories repurposed. And the content of them, all warriors and magics, does tease at possibly even pre-Christian stories. And this idea is incredibly compelling, and so previously a number of scholars have proposed this. But nowadays, certainly the idea of a pre-Christian origin to this is a bit less popular. And while there are certainly elements that may date back much further, identifying what those are and what kind of relation they had to any earlier stories is nigh on impossible. There are a lot of theories about which historical characters, gods or various other people that the characters in the Maglinogion represent. How close Bran, for instance, is with a Bran in Irish mythology and how close the cauldron of rebirth is to various Irish magical cauldrons, and how much the stories are actually just the reflection of medieval Welsh writers and their concerns, rather than anything earlier. It seems that there were definitely more stories in this mythological shared universe, for want of a better phrase, but we don't have them, and we don't really know a lot. In fact, that's a fairly accurate comparison. We're pretty much in the position of people who only have Avengers Endgame and maybe a couple of original Thor comics to go on, and we're trying to construct the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe and the comics. And the fans of all of those certainly have some theories, and they're engaged in the academic equivalent of flame wars over the subject. So hopefully that gives you something of this rather messy picture. It's probably worth saying that even though some of the literal readings of these as pre-Christian deities have been largely abandoned, that idea still resonates largely in how these stories are told and understood today, and representations of them often incorporate those elements, and are one reason for their popularity. Now, once again, I should give a quick nod to how indebted I am to the translators of these tales, Chanel Davis's recent version and Lady Charlotte Guest's translation from the 19th century. But having established very little at all about the origin of these, let's talk a little bit about the events of today's episode. Okay, so a couple of things. Firstly, you might be thinking, well, not much happened there, did it? There was that weird bit at the start that didn't link back to anything, and then there was a marriage and a disagreement, but then that was all sorted out, there was a story in a story and it all seemed to end up badly for Bramwin. But I assure you, it's all a setup for the next episode, which is a lot more action-filled. You also might notice that this tale has very little to do with the first Mabinogi story we told, even though they are both referred to in the text as branches of the Mabinogi. Though the really eagle-eared amongst you, which is definitely a thing, um, elephant-eared maybe, may have picked up on the briefest mentions of Prideri, who is the son of Poich, and appears at the very end of the first branch. So, well done if you somehow managed that one. But there is pretty much no link between the two tales apart from this. Extended universe stuff, remember. Damn useful metaphor, that. What there is in this story is once again your royal guide to good diplomacy. Paying the honour price even if it wasn't you who did it, setting up marriage alliances, all that stuff. You can imagine how these stories might be a primer on what is good kingship. There's also that heavy blend of magical realism here that makes these stories compelling. The giant king, the cauldron of rebirth with its little mute disclaimer, placed within an otherwise pretty usual world. I've not bothered to hide my frustration with the lack of an inner life or agency for Branwyn here. Men make all her decisions for her, 
Hell, her brother is angry that he can't make decisions about her. And in the end, she is somehow made to suffer for it. She's the only woman in the story, and this is how she's portrayed. But what I do like about the tale is how it does effectively convey that this is not a great position for her to be in. It isn't okay with her to be controlled by all the men, it isn't saying, look how well it works out. Rather it just presents it as reality, and it's very hard to concoct a reading from it that isn't just, this is bloody awful for her. Okay, so one more little aside I just want to throw in. Nishin, good brother of main character, okay? Bear with me here. Evnishian, bad brother. One syllable difference at the start of the name. Luigi and Waluigi. Same deal, one syllable denotes badness. Look, it's not a perfect match, but I saw it and I can't get it out of my head, so it's yours now as well. Okay, that's it for now. Thanks again to everyone who helped me with pronunciations. Ellen Longcommon, at Bendigeardfran on Twitter, and Anne-Marie O'Neill. Any correct pronunciations are very much down to their hard work, and the many remaining errors are very much my own. Now just a quick update on a couple of things, I suppose. Firstly, thank you so much to all the people who have signed up again on Patreon. It's um, been wonderful to see. The first members episode has now been released, and there will hopefully be another members episode coming in the next couple of weeks. Thanks to Hades or Hades, Abigail Fine, Backroad Jack, Amir Cat, Geraldine, Elizabeth, John Davis and Colin Ware for the support. It remains kind of magical to me that you guys like the podcast enough to want to sign up. Thank you as well to all the people who've written reviews, which is a fantastic way to support us. Thanks especially to Happy Jenny, who describes me as a professional storyteller, which I can assure you that most unfortunately I am not, but one can dream, eh? One other thing, I've recently been involved in a recording with a number of other folklore, myths and legends type podcasts, all bagged together under the title Folkapalooza, where this group of highly knowledgeable podcasters share some of their favourite folk tales. In that, I talk a little bit about the stories by MC Balfour, and many other people share really interesting tales, including about King Arthur the Parrot Knight and Bloody Mackenzie. I'm probably not going to put it on this feed because it doesn't really fit with how this podcasts work, but I will link it on social media, and probably the best place to find it will be The Folklore Podcast. There are some great independent podcasters out there covering these kind of topics, and I'll be promoting them a little bit more over the next couple of episodes. Okay, that is genuinely about it. Next episode, you'll be unsurprised to learn, will be the conclusion to Branch 2 of the Mabinogion. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast then please do share it with others or give it a review as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon.